Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 193 of All Booked Up, the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library's podcast about books, movies, and all things pop culture. I am your host, Michelle Snyder. And I am Jacob Miracle. Jacob, how are you today? I am living on a razor's edge here, Michelle. <laughs> I got no sleep last night. The allergies, I don't know what's going on with the pollen this year, but it is out of control. Jacob walked in the door this morning and we did like an old person conversation where we just immediately talked about all of our ales, which I, I will not get to I dropped, online here. I dropped the word chrome and like everybody <laughs> fell back to the 1950s for a second. So if that happened to you, that was my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's a it's a <laughs> heck of a day. Every um crazy stuff in the news. I this like Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing. Oh, it's it's the best, isn't it? It's I'm not like, the best. It's terrible. It's like it's two terrible, very but. self-destructive people that got together and just were terrible people. Yeah. It's really hard. I also I hate I hate society that the the like side choosing when you don't actually know anything i'm like you know what she could be terrible that's fine let her be i don't care at all she's a terrible person but like to act like you know anything about honey how johnny depp acts when he's super drunk or you know like you don't yeah so let's just be that they're both probably trash people and like move on from it (laughs) i'm like every day i have to hear about it i'm like it's so weird counterpoint uh, she's got that one thing that's pretty awful. That I don't. We don't need to get into <laughs> anything. But um, at least I don't got. To, at least I won't have to watch her in Aquaman too. I enjoy that very much because she's she gonna get fired. I wouldn't have to anyway. Oh, yeah, never watch Aquaman. <laughs> anyway, um, so are you a little bummed that this is our last episode for two weeks? I am I'm because depressed. Shell going out of town. My uh, my sleep schedule is very enjoyable. Where are you going for the? Uh, Um, We're going to California to go to Yosemite, Sequoia, Death Valley, and Joshua Tree National Park. Okay. Are you guys swinging by the Friends Cast Reunion Party uh, (laughs) while you're out there? We will not be doing that. It's really, I have to pack all of my clothing because Yosemite right now is like 30 degrees and snowing and Death Valley, the last I looked, was up to 117 degrees. Okay, see, so, now that's going to be a jump. That's a little strange. Make sure you bring a it's little... very buffalo. Yeah, bring, oh, God, yeah. It, you've literally been training for this for the past month and a half. That's actually accurate. It's supposed <laughs> to be like 80 today. So, um, yeah, so we will, I'll mention it probably again at the end, but we will be off for two weeks. But did you know... And I know that listeners, you do know because we've discussed this before, which yeah. is great, is that in the U.S., May is the month when we shine a particular spotlight on the heritage, history, and contributions of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I feel like we just talked about this. It's wild to me that a whole year has gone by. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the uh, time dilation that's going on here because it's getting a little bit closer and closer. No, and I, I was like doing my hair this morning and I lifted it up so I could put like a little spray on the roots. And I was like, time out. All the hairs that are coming out of the roots oh. are gray. Oh, my God. My beard right now, it is. It's getting rough, man. It's, it's wild times. Anyway, again, just we are acting like old well, fogies today. Because we didn't get any sleep last night. <laughs> the, aller- the allergies are bugging us. We've got mercure chrome on the brain. So maybe, you know, the month for um, this heritage. Of course, as always, there's no reason to limit yourself to one month when reading books by Asian Americans or Pacific Islanders. Um, but with this list, we're going to talk about these are a lot of new books. They were all published or upcoming in 2022. So you are not going to run out of great fiction and thought-provoking nonfiction for a very long time. We got your back. Um, I think we cast kind of a 
rather broad nut this year, including works by authors from the Asian um, community around the world, as well as freshly translated titles. I think there's one or two in there. Um, This isn't meant to be a comprehensive list, but a sampling of books to discover across genres. Yeah. They're pretty good ones, guys. We're going to give you a good description of them. There's plenty to choose from, and some have been my favorites of the year, so I'm really, I'm excited to gush about those. Yeah, you were saying that you, um, like, you didn't even realize you had read some of these books. You kind of, like, looked at the title again. Yeah, it was like, okay, let's see what books from 2022 I've read by Asian American or Pacific Islander authors, and I was like, oh, I've loved these books, too. So it's a solid year, so you want to hop into it? Sure do. Um, So let's see here. Uh, Do you want to start? Do you want me to go? Sure. Um, Okay, so this book I might have mentioned before because I was really excited it was coming out, but I hadn't read it yet, and that's To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara. And what's always interesting, I always mention, is this author wrote the saddest book I ever read in my whole life that made me want to just cut my skin off and oh, set it on fire. Jeez. What, what? But it was a great book. So, what, what, uh, we were talking about later about this book that almost made you It was called A Little Life. Anyone who read it out there is like, yeah, I know oh, what boy. you're talking just about. That, just that title alone, that's not, not a great story. It was rough. But this is a bold, new, brilliant novel. It spans three centuries and three different versions of the American experiment. It's about lovers and family loss and kind of the elusive promise of utopia. So you have like an alternative version of America in all of the scenes. The first one is in 1893 in New York, which is part of the free states. So that's where people may live and love whoever they please. So like they they still have slaves Mm -hmm. no they don't have slaves i don't even remember now but like people can be gay so it's like a little different it's not great but it's still better than like what's happening in the south where like there is yeah so there's no slavery in the north um people are trying to come up but they don't really let people into the free states it's it's kind of weird but you have this young scion of this distinguished family and he's resisting um his betrothal to a worthy suitor um, he ends up, of course, falling for a guy who has nothing. The of start of every story. Yeah. Um, then it kind of like jumps ahead to 1993, and you're still in Manhattan, but now it's besieged by the AIDS epidemic, and you have this young Hawaiian man who lives with this really older, wealthier partner, and then he's hiding his troubled childhood and the fate of his father, and then it jumps to 2093, and oh. now it's a world that's just riven by plagues and governed governed by t- totalitarian rule. Um, and we have this really powerful scientist, damaged granddaughter who's trying to navigate life without him. So it, it's really strange, but it's beautiful in these three sections. They're kind of joined together in this really ingenious way. Um, and there's reoccurring notes and themes that really deepen and enrich one another. And it's just kind of like the longing to find a place in an earthly paradise and the gradual realization that it can't really exist. Oh. So it's a heck of a novel is what I'm going to say. Um, that, that's some dense plot you got going on with that it's, guy. It's a lot. It's it's a work of emotional genius. I find her to be an extraordinary writer. I will say you got to be in the mood for it. This is a big old book, but it is remarkable. It's gigantic. It's strange. It's exquisite. It's terrifying. I love a book that makes me feel all of those things at once. Oh, see, now I like that, man. You know, I'm a big fan of those tomes of books, man. Those really thick ones. So <laughs> I'm always going for the, uh, that's not going to get my pillars of the earth action. Out. I know. it. All right. What do you have? All right. So I am going to go with uh, Portrait of a Thief by Grace Lee. Because I like the idea of like the, like these little team up stories. So 
This one is about Will Chen, who is a uh, senior at Harvard. He is um, he basically is thinking about all of the um, art and sculptures and stuff that have been stolen from China throughout the throughout oh, history. That's a lot to think about. Yeah. Well, in case you didn't know, China gets invaded a lot or got invaded a lot and yeah. had pretty much all of its culture and history stolen. So it's at various places around the world. So we will thinks, hey, you know, what would be a good idea. Let's steal it all back. I'll hey, Will, I get it. it. So he decides he's going to go on his own Ocean's Eleven kind of deal. So he recruits five of his friends, each with a specific skill that's going to be useful in stealing all of these uh, treasures. Okay. But, of course, you know, because you can't just do these kind of things for <laughs> solely uh, good purposes, if they do it, they also get $50 million oh, in well, return. Yeah. So, and a chance to make history, I suppose. If, you know, you get to bring all that back. So... It's what it is. It's like a it's supposed to be an equally part beautiful, thoughtful book because it goes through thinking about what it means when you have like the culture of a country just taken away by invaders and um, colonialists. Mm -hmm. Colonialists? Yeah, that works. We'll go with that. Um, And what it could mean for people to kind of take their history back and, you know, kind of get that reintegrated and take more pride in like their national identity and, and beginning. So, yeah, that sounds good. Plus, I always am a fan of when we start busting in hackers and like. That's a good. It fa- sounds like a face caper. Men. Yeah, it's like a caper book. So, uh, I'm sure it'll show up on your screen eventually. But check it out. Uh, check out the book right now while you get a chance. Okay, cool. So this book, ooh, 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 I'm gonna say I think that this is my favorite book of 2022 so far. It's called The Immortal King Rao by okay. Vahini Vara. So this is in an Indian village in the 1950s. A precocious child is born into a family of Dalit coconut farmers. That's kind of one of the castes in India. Okay. And King Rao, his name is King. That's his first name. He's not a king. They just named him King, didn't give him a powerful name. So King Rao will grow up to be the most accomplished tech CEO in the world and eventually the leader of a global corporate-led government. So in the future, the world is run by the board of corporations, which you kind of have to read to understand. Um, But it it really does. It is like literally going to be happening in the future. So you might as well get used to it. Hey, the book helped. Um, And then King's daughter, Athena, is reckoning with his legacy, literally for he has given her access to his memories kind of like digitally among other very questionable gifts. And now with climate changes ranging, just tearing things apart on the land and Athena has come to believe that saving the planet and its shareholders because that's what people (laughs) are called now we're not citizens we're shareholders will require this really radical act of communion so she sets out to tell the truth to the world's shareholders and it's this really entrancing story about King's childhood on a South Indian coconut plantation, his migration to the U.S. where he studied engineering in a world that's really transformed by globalization, um, his marriage, um, the birth of his daughter. It's, it's, I don't even know. It was written by a former Wall Street Journal technology reporter. Okay. So it so probably they, has some insight, insight there. Absolutely. And you feel that. And it just really resonates. Um, it's an excellent debut novel. It obliterates the boundaries between literary and speculative fiction, which we just talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, 
you've got your dystopian in there and it really confronts how we arrived at the age of technological capitalism and where our actions might take us next i found it utterly thrilling and brilliant like i said one of my favorites i understand it's a book that's not for everyone sure this is a really random book we get like advanced copies sometimes and i grabbed it and then one day at home i was like i don't know what this is i'll start it and i loved it so i would highly recommend the immortal king Rao. okay i like it uh, this to- we're gonna, you know what i'm gonna jump right back into some more dystopia while we're talking of course about that's there. that's it, what we love the that's most the genre that's the genre i live in man so we're going with the city inside by samit basu okay so get this it is a near future where the environment governments and the world at large is in trouble <laughs> this is every book now yeah pretty much pretty much everything about the future it's gonna be quite terrible everybody <laughs> Stop. A little bit of hope. We have a little bit of hope. This this book says that it has some hopeful potential (laughs) for the future, so we'll see. So it follows uh, this character, Joey, who's a reality controller in um, Delhi, India. Um, Her job is to supervise the multimedia, multi-reality live streams of Indy, who's one of the biggest stars in India and just also happens to be her college ex. So that's always um, fun so with their job they get considerable like cultural power and they get like a lot of uh, influence that way but they also have to deal with the day-to-day crises of like running a celebrity so then it goes into some other people who have like they're estranged from their um, families who live in more impoverished neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and it's kind of looking at what their life is going to be like because they don't really have the out that this person the um, Joey has in terms of like, you know, having other jobs or having a celebrity and stuff and having influence. Okay. They're just kind of like learning to live with the effects of climate change and sure. environmental strife and trying to live through that. But as the eventually these two from the different sides of the tracks meet and we start getting some conspiracies going on. So they start getting enmeshed with government conspiracies and more kind of like environmental stuff going on. And they're just trying to figure out this what is they can do. a heck of a story also. You know, I don't know what it is. It just seems like there is all these um, dystopian books coming out of the future about how, uh, you know, surveillance is bad and f- reliance on the Internet's bad. Yeah, and we just we. can't seem to you know, realize that it's not going to be good for us. I read this really interesting thing that I'm not going to word it as eloquently as they did. But it was kind of explaining, like, why do we think people are, are so drawn to dystopian books? And they were like, I don't think it's because people are into, you know, this disaster or are looking for the heroes who survive or Mm -hmm. is survivalist tales. They're like, I think people love them because deep down we all long for a time of less technology so that we read these and you see this future where that stuff's been wiped out and that that maybe even subconsciously really appeals to people. And Mm. I definitely get that. I could see that. Like. You know, people like people always look uh, wistfully back at like the early two thousands previous to that, where like you didn't have any tech. Like the beeper was the height. Yeah, of like early nineties stuff, like just nothing. Yeah, nothing going on, man. If but you, enough, you know. Obviously, still technology, but not like the way it is now. We're so inundated, and everyone's anxieties up, and depression, and mm-hmm. people live on the screen, and all of that. So we got to make sure we get blue light filters now and special glasses for stuff. I don't know. That book sounds good. Yeah, That's so go go call. check it out, everybody. Get get, get um, prepare for the future conspiracies that we're all going to be dealing <laughs> with on a daily basis. Uh, so this next book, I also loved. It's also weird. Um, It's called How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. It's a good title. It's a great title and it's a beautiful cover. I bought this book randomly from the bookstore 
for the cover. You pulled a blockbuster video. I like that. 100%. I bought three books that day that were beautiful. Two ended up being good. Um, <laughs> so in 2030, a grieving archaeologist arrives at the Arctic Circle to continue the work of his recently deceased daughter, um, where researchers are studying long-buried secrets now revealed in the melting permafrost, including the perfectly preserved remains of a girl who appears to have died of an ancient virus. Oh God. As she is now unfrozen, you see what's going on. So once unleashed, this new Arctic plague will reshape life on Earth for generations to come, quickly transversing the globe, forcing humanity to devise a myriad of moving and inventive ways to embrace possibility in the face of tragedy. There are some, it's not that they're short stories, it's all one story, but they kind of talk about like what different people are doing to deal with it. In mm. one of them, it is the weirdest. There's like a theme park designed for terminally ill children. So they have like this great day and then oh. they go on this roller coaster and they all die. Wow. So that they are kind of put out of their misery. There's this heartbroken scientist who's looking for a cure and he ends up experimenting on a pig that develops the capacity for human speech. So we've got, there's interstellar starships in here. So there's a lot of really weird stuff. Um, but it is wondrous. Nagamatsu takes readers on this really widely original and compassionate journey. And like I said, it spans continents and centuries and even celestial bodies to tell the story about the resilience of the human spirit, um, our kind of our, our infinite capacity to dream and all the connective threads that tie us together in the universe. Nice. It was epic. It was stunning. It's just a great book. That's a pretty cool idea, actually. Do you think they make the kids that go on the death roller coaster put their seatbelts on? Like they, that's an honest question, man. It's kind I'm of, sure that they do because the kids don't know. Oh, yeah, I guess. Well, but they're going, I mean, I don't like to give it away, but it's like the first kind of story in the book. But yeah, so they like have this great day and then they like go on this last ride and their parents stand there and wave and then. They should have they known when Tony Todd was doing the uh, the announcing over the loudspeakers. I don't know who Tony Todd is. You know, it's the Candyman. You got that dude's oh, voice Oh, who up? can know his like real name? That's so weird. You obviously are not I was a the Candyman aficionado. once. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> Candyman, ooh, we, we going to have an argument about some horror movies later on. Here. I think that we would. But, yeah, definitely check out How High We Go in the Dark. What do you have? All right, so let's go into some more crime books, shall we? We're going to go with The Family Chow by Lan, Sam Lan Samantha Chang. Okay. Uh, nailed it that time. Uh, so this one, uh, the residents of Haven, Wisconsin, have dined in the Fine Chow restaurant for years, one of the best Americanized uh, Chinese food restaurants in the area. So nothing that you'd actually get in China. Right. <laughs> Right. You just let a lot of General Sal's chicken getting thrown around. <laughs> yeah, <it> sure is. <laughs> um, so uh, for 35 years, Big Leo Chow has been the uh, the patriarch of this family. Uh, there's a lot of kind of rumors going around about the guy, but nothing really substantiated until one day he is found dead in the restaurant. And they have to figure out who does it, who did it. And the three Why suspects him? are his three oldest or his three sons. Oh, no. Each who has a different reason for wanting to do it. Do it. Not surprisingly, one is a successful banker, but, you know, personally tortured. We got our one that is the chef who is stuck in his father's shadow. Ah. And the third one who, you know, feels like he doesn't get any attention at all and, you know, feels like left behind. Okay. So the book is basically about which one did it. We're going to have like a nice knives out kind of situation going here. But it's also. Oh, yeah, that's true. Very comedic. There's a lot of funny parts in here. There's a lot of drama and, you know, family tragedy because one of the one of the sons probably killed 
<laughs> the dad. So that, that always kind of puts a damper on the family uh, dynamic. Another good sounding murder mystery, though. Yeah, yeah. It actually does seem like it's going to be pretty good. So if you want to get away from the dystopian stuff for a little <laughs> and while. Get to murder. Yeah. Mur- something a little tamer. Yeah, a little old school murder, <laughs> man. A little palate cleanser. Oh, like, gosh. Oh, is that a palate cleanser? I'm so upset. Okay. Well, I'm, you know, it's one murder versus a billion. You get your choice. I mean, I get it. I listen to murder podcasts all day. <laughs> My brain is goo. Um, he, they, were, they were fine. <laughs> Until they weren't. She lit up a room until her head was cut off. (laughs) He was was alive, and then he wasn't. Uh, All right, I'm going to do a nonfiction book. This is Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong by Louisa Lim. So she is an award-winning journalist and longtime Hong Konger, um, and she really indelibly captures the place, its people, and the untold history they are claiming just as it is being erased. So the story of Hong Kong has long been dominated by competing myths. So to Britain, it was a barren rock with no appreciable history. To China, it's part of Chinese soil um, from the time immemorial. And at last returned to the ancestral fold. That's kind of what they're looking for now. So for decades, its history was just simply not taught, um, especially to Hong Kongers. So it really obscured its origins as a place of refuge and rebellion. So when protests erupted in 2019 and were met with escalating suppression from Beijing, Louisa Lim, who was raised in Hong Kong as half Chinese, half English child, and now a reporter, um, realized that she was really uniquely positioned to unearth Hong Kong's untold stories. So it's a really deeply researched book. It also has personal um, accounts, and it casts startling new light on key moments like the British takeover in 1842, the negotiations over the 1997 return to China, and the future that Beijing seeks to impose on them. So if you're, you know, you hear about this all the time, if you're looking to find out more, and especially from someone um, on the ground, this is a really, um, it's a great book and you get to hear from like the people with the power and the powerless. So you're kind of seeing both sides of it and the real history. So Hong Kong is a fascinating city if you get into like their history and stuff. Like, yeah. They're even like their like underworld, like their crime and gangster underworld is fascinating when you start getting into some of the specifics of it. But then oh, gee, I don't know anything about that. Oh, man, there are some good, like, historically um, accurate movies that were made about, like, drug kingpins in okay. Hong Kong. They actually do, like, a lot of street fighting and stuff because, you know, they don't really have guns, so do all that. But, yeah, Hong Kong's a very fascinating island. Like, it, even today... It's part of China, but it's not, and it's getting folded back in. It's a whole... I'm sorry, how much cooler would America be if there was very, very limited guns, and so gangs had to street fight, and we just saw people street fighting? Oh, it'd be the best, That man. is so much better. Get a straight-up dune situation, everybody's just running around with swords going at it? like. Oh, man, I didn't even think about swords. Yeah, there you, I mean, you've got to give them something, so... Oh, God, I want that. And happen. everyone who's not part of that would be safer. Yeah, they get to stand around and watch. They're not going to. Pro- you're probably not going to get hit by. If a I drive ra- through sword. it like I did before, I won't end up with a stray bullet in my car. I would maybe just have like a sword swipe on oh, it. That would have for- been better. I forgot that story. Oh, when my car got shot. Yeah, when you got shot driving to go get McDonald's or whatever it was. I wasn't getting McDonald's. <laughs> How dare you? I was going to visit my grandma on her birthday. Oh. Wow, those are you two monster. very, very different things. Yes, as, they are. As long as I didn't pull like a Morpheus from Matrix Two and just like karate chop or like sword swipe the side oh, of your right car and through flip the whole yeah. area. 
<laughs> that at least would have been something kind of cool, though, too. That's but. true. You'd be, as you're flying through the air, like, I'm dying in the coolest way ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just do a book before we run out of time here. All right. The next one I'm going to go with is Cartographers by Peng Shepard. Oh, I keep hearing about that. Yeah. I've actually heard about it, too. It's um got some buzz going on. I read it. a book by that author called The Book of M. Okay. It was interesting. What did uh, NLP do it? You disgust me. <laughs> disgust me. Nailed it from downtown. <laughs> <laughs> so this book is about Nell Young, who uh, her whole life and greatest passion is cartography. Uh, okay. So her father <laughs> died. <laughs> Judgy. <laughs> Cartography is actually super cool. I'm sure it is. If I'm this, I'm not versed in it, so okay. So know, th- therefore, <laughs> make the circles closer to each other as they get the grade gets steeper. I know the rules of cartography. But I think I don't. Oh, brother, I've seen enough mummy movies. Uh, so her whole, she's a um, big passion for cartography. Her father, uh, Dr. Daniel Young, is a legend in the cartography field, which probably plays into it. And they've had kind of a falling out after her dad kind of put her on blast and Uh-oh. ruined her reputation over some subway maps that she was working on. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's, that's an okay. interesting story. Um, but when Dr. Young is found dead in his office at the New York Public Library uh, with the same worthless map on his person that he basically freaked out on her about, she is uh. like, I need to get to the bottom of this map. Through some more evidence, some more research, she finds it's the only one in existence. So now she's trying to find out where's this map going? What's the deal here? So she starts going on an Indiana Jones-esque escapade to go Ooh. find out where this map leads and what's going on and why her dad, you know, blew up her spot and then lied to her for her life. And, and then who, had who got it, murdered, yeah. So okay. It's going to be a good one, man. Go check that one out. I'm very interested in that. I Like I said, the last book by that author, I was kind of like, it was okay. It was like a three-star, I think. Okay. So I'm hoping this one, I like to pop it up to a four. Yeah, get at least a 3.5. Maybe something. a 3.75, but you got to do something really special for us to get into the quarter mark. <laughs> I can't do those on Goodreads, so they can't exist in my mind. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, I, that sounds really good. Yeah, so go check it out, everyone. All right. Um, I want to talk about a book. This is a deeply intimate second poetry collection called Time is a Mother by Ocean Vyong. Um, And he is searching for life among the aftershocks of his mother's death, um, embodying the paradox of sitting within grief while being determined to survive beyond it. You might recognize his name from themes from his last novel, which was On Earth, Were Briefly Gorgeous, which was a gorgeous book. Absolutely beautiful. But in that and in this, he contends with personal loss, the meaning of family, the cost of being the product of an American war in America. And at once it's vivid, it's brave, um, it's propulsive. The poems really circle fragmented lives to find both restoration as well as kind of the epicenter of the break. So like I said, he writes really beautifully. I have not read this yet, but I have no doubts that you know, it's it's going to be very affecting. There, there's certain authors you pretty much know what you're going to you're going to get something good out of them. So yeah, like just for Asian authors, you get a Murakami book, you know you're getting something 
something weird. Something weird. Some weird. <laughs> something solid. Something weird. Yes, I do love him. But um, yeah, time is a mother, but also check out On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, because yeah. I loved it. Uh, what do you think? Do you uh, want to do one more? We're, we're a little close. Yeah, I'll just throw out a quick one. Uh, nuclear, yeah. nuclear Family by Joseph Hahn. Uh, the look oh, I was the like, nuclear, please don't. But I see. <laughs> nuclear Family. Got it. <laughs> uh, well, this is set in the, uh, you know, during 2008 when there was that false missile alert in Hawaii when they were like, oh, nuclear bombs. Are oh, I haven't even thought about that since so, 2008. So many terrible things ago. <laughs> Who could even keep it? Um, so basically, part of the story is the Cho family's living in South Korea. Everything's going good until one day their son is seen on television trying to cross the demilitarized zone. So oh. he gets arrested for that. Little did they know, he's not himself. He's actually possessed by the soul of his dead grandpa. What? Who <laughs> wants to get back to Korea, North Korea because he feels guilty about the family he left behind the wall. So wow. This story is basically talking about the interrogation. And then, of course, the family starts getting dirty looks from everybody because they're like, hey, why is your son trying to defect to North Korea? He's going in the wrong direction. So that kind of starts to affect the family, too. And then they got to deal with that, plus the supernatural, plus history of Korea. Whoa. Some crazy stuff going on here, guys. So Nuclear Family by uh, Joseph Hahn. Go check that out. Uh, well, I'm get a weird one in Yeah, you it. really, I didn't see that coming. I'm telling <laughs> you, man, this, the book surprises you. <gasps> okay, I would say <clears throat> that we're probably out of time. So, Jacob, why don't you plug us out? So if you are looking for some Asian-American or uh, Southern Asian-American. Pacific Islander. Pacific Islander, thank you. Yeah. Uh, books, uh, stop by your local library and celebrate this month we got one for you we have 37 branches all throughout erie county stop on by and say hi don't forget to visit our website at www.buffalolib.org and don't forget to follow us on twitter at all booked up pod and let us know your suggestions for asian american and pacific islander books did you know that the start of asian american and pacific islander heritage month happened in congress in 1978 they passed a resolution um creating kind of a week and then it expanded into a month only in 1992, which um, the time I liked, it coincided with important milestones in Asian American history, arrival of the first Japanese immigrants to the United States, okay. which was May 7th, 1843. And then the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, which is May 10th. Um, 1869, mm. and the majority of those workers were uh, Chinese immigrants. So that's why they picked May. All right, it's a good month. Sure. The total Asian um, population is about 6% in America, or 20 million people. The number of Asians, that's from, I believe, the 2020 census. Okay. Um, the states with the largest and smallest percentages are Hawaii, is 37.2% of their Ma population is Asian. That makes sense. Give me one stab at the lowest where it's 0.8%. Um, Mississippi. That's not bad. Montana. Oh, you started with an M. I got one. Yeah, <laughs> good point. <clears throat> but the total native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander population is less than 1% of our population, or about 690,000 only, hmm. which is kind of crazy. Um, so the state with the largest population, though, is also Hawaii. Makes sense. 10.8%. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Do you know Asian-owned businesses um, are about one out of 10 businesses are Asian-owned. So that's mm. about, you know, 581,000 or 10%. But the Pacific Islander, it is about one out of 1,000. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me yeah, at all. Yeah, 7,000 or 0.1%. <laughs> so let's... I don't know. Let's get some grants out there. Let's get yeah. some more 
Let's make it interesting. I mean, it's great having stories and stuff by other people from other cultures because it just keeps it interesting and fresh. Let's spread the wealth around, guys. We don't need to give all of the Pacific Islanders money to The Rock. He's going to be fine. We can give it to everybody else. Just, you know, the allotted amount. We'll just give it around a little bit. Jacob is wise beyond his years. So, again, we will be off for the next two weeks, but we will be back on June 6th. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye.